studying the, the path that Jesus took all the way from the Garden of Gethsemane till his crucifixion. The period of time between when Jesus was arrested in the garden and between when he actually died was approximately 12 to 14 hours. In the last four weeks, we have spent all four weeks examining that brief period of time that took place in a total period of about 12 hours. This morning, we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. Last week, we ended with His death on the cross. This week, we will take a look at the triumphal rise from the dead as He came out of the grave. So let's start off where we left off last week in John chapter 19 and verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in along also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had laid. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, 
and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Let us pray. Father, this morning we are most grateful for Your presence. What an honor it is, Lord, to be able to come and worship You in spirit and in truth. God, I pray this morning that You would give us more of Yourself. God, I pray this morning that You would breathe the breath of life on us. God, I pray, Father, that You would save the lost. God, that You would remove the veil from those that cannot see clearly. God, that You would give life to the dead, spiritually speaking. A sight to the blind, spiritually speaking. Lord, I pray, God, You'd anoint our ears to hear Your voice this morning. Knowing our eyes to see You. Knowing our hearts to understand. And now, God, I pray that You would anoint me with the unction of heaven. God, as I do my best this morning to preach on the reality of the resurrection and the power in Christ. God, help us to see what You defeated on that day when Your Son was risen from the dead. God, help us this morning to be stirred to action. God, moved with compassion, Father, overwhelmed by Your grace. Lord, we ask that You would have Your way. We need You. We don't need anything more than You. God, we certainly need nothing less. Give us Yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to get to John chapter 20, but I wanted to read verses 38 through 42 to to, uh, deal with one last thing that took place before the Lord's resurrection. We see in verse 38 and verse 39 that Joseph and Nicodemus both come and help take the body of Jesus and place it in that tomb. It's interesting that up to this point, Jesus has been beaten, He has been mocked, He has been nearly uh, beaten to death before put on the cross, He was crucified, He was teased, He was ridiculed, He had the beard plucked from His face, He was he had spit on His face from the, the bystanders that were mocking Him. Jesus has been handled by His enemies. It's interesting in the Bible, though, that once He breathed His last, And once he cried out the words, it is finished, you never see an enemy place a hand on Jesus again. You need to understand that what Jesus did on the cross finished it for all of his enemies. They thought they had won. They thought that they had handled him. They thought they had put him where they wanted him. But really, he wrought the victory when he cried out those words, it is finished. And from that moment forward and for all of eternity, there will never be another enemy that lays fingers on the Lord Jesus Christ. His friends took him down off the cross, and his friends put him in the tomb. If the Gospel of John were just an ordinary biography, like all others, if the Gospel of John was just an ordinary account of an ordinary man, there would be no John chapter 20. But of all the biographies ever written about the life of a man, of all the true stories ever recorded about a person's ministry, about a person's teachings, about a person's life and a person's death, there's never been another except the biography of Jesus Christ that has a John chapter 20 that tells us what took place after He died. The last verse in John chapter 19 tells us that there they laid Him in the tomb. But then comes John chapter 20. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have so much I want to say about the resurrection this morning. Let me first say that it is proof that Jesus Christ is not like any other man. It is the single most important feat that Jesus Christ accomplished. All of what Jesus did is verifiable, by the way. There are morons in our culture and and people that have PhDs that will try to tell you that Jesus was not a real man, that He's a figment of people's imagination. The stupidity of trying to prove such an argument would be equal to the stupidity of that man in Iran who tried to say that uh, Hitler never did exist. There is verifiable, historical, provable evidence that a man who called himself Jesus Christ lived and died about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. You can do it without the Bible. It is proof. It is there. It is, it is verifiable for us to see and believe. He did miracles. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He made the deaf hear. These things are truly not arguable. Not if you are honest and you have taken a true look at history. The question is not, did Jesus exist? The question is not, did Jesus really do miracles? All of that is provable. The question is, who is He? That's the question. How did He do the miracles that He did? Was He just a madman who deceived millions? Was He a magician who had tapped into some magical force to heal people and and to make the lame walk and to make the blind see? How did He do what He did? That is the question. And Jesus asked the question to His disciples, Who do you say that I am? This morning, that's the most important question you will ever answer. Who do you say that He is? The resurrection is the proof He is who He said He is. There has never been another that has risen from the dead. Every other philosopher, every other founder of any religion, every other teacher throughout the history of the ages has died and has remained there in His grave. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth rose victoriously on that day out of the tomb to prove He is exactly who He said He was, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. The resurrection is our proof that what we believe is true. It settles it. It settles it once and for all. It doesn't matter what Confucius says. It doesn't matter what Buddha says. It doesn't matter what Muhammad says. It doesn't matter what the man down the street says. It doesn't matter what the historians of old say. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the final proof that we need He is who He said He is. Paul, speaking of the resurrection, Paul, speaking of its significance to our faith, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14 said this. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Some versions say our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. If Christ is not risen from the dead, we are wasting our time here this morning. And our preaching is futile. There is no hope for you. There is no hope for the lost man or woman. We are hopelessly doomed to stand before God and give an account for our own sins. Our preaching is in vain if Christ is not raised from the dead. And our faith is in vain. 
It is the central, most important aspect of our Christian faith. You need to understand it is the one thing that separates the Christian faith from all other faiths of the world. Our Founder died and rose from the dead just like He said He would on the third day. But if indeed Christ has been raised, and that He has, number one, it tells us our justification is, is finished and full. We see that in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 through 25. It demonstrates to us the power that is available to us as Christians. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, if you will, in verse 18 through 20. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that he is praying. We'll start in verse 17. Praying for the Ephesians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His inheritance in the saints, And look at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. I pray that you as God's people will get the revelation of the fact that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, it is in you. The power of the resurrection demonstrates to us the power that God has given to His children. I pray that this morning God will help somebody to see that. It's one thing to raise somebody from the dead, and we see that nobody ever had power to do such except God Himself. We see the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We see Jesus raising um, that one from the dead that uh, the mother had come, and they were in the middle of a funeral procession. We see that there were other uh, graves that opened up at the, at the day, same day of the resurrection, and some that came into Jerusalem testifying of the first fruits of the resurrection. But to raise Christ from the dead, To raise the Son of God from the dead. It is a power that our minds cannot fully comprehend. But Ephesians chapter 1 says this, I pray that God will give you a revelation of the exceeding great power that works in us, through us, that God has given to us the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Do you understand this morning, child of God, that same power is in you? That the resurrection of Christ is the evidence for us that the power of God has been imputed to us. That we have the the ability as His ambassadors, as His hands, and as His feet, and as His mouthpiece to be the love to this world, to be the power of God to this world. That we as God's people have the ability to do the spiritual work that only God can do. Do you realize it this morning? Can you hear me this morning? Do you realize this thing we call Christianity, it's bigger than just coming to church and simply listening to a preacher preach and having some religion about you and being able to quote a few Scriptures. But the power of God that raised Christ from the dead has been given to God's people. 
Now I ask you, Christian brother, I ask you, Christian sister, what do you do with this power? What do you do with it? Do you realize what victory we have if we will walk in the power of the resurrection? Do you realize the strength that we can have, the change that it gives us, the power that is ours because the proof of the resurrection proves to us what God has given to us? No doubt it requires exactly what Paul prayed for, for the Ephesian church, a spirit of revelation and wisdom. Most Christians spend their life walking around feeling hopelessly doomed to their circumstances. Believing that whatever happens this week will dictate to them whether or not they can be happy or not. Believing that whether or not they have a good day at work will determine how the rest of their evening goes. Believing that somehow, some way, the circumstances of this life have control over me. But I'm here to tell you this morning because Jesus got up out of the grave. Everything that He said was ours is ours. He proved that He was who He said He was. And we can walk in the power of the resurrection every day of our lives if we'll have our faith in Jesus Christ. We do not have to be defeated. We do not have to live miserable lives. We do not have to live under the defeat of the enemy. We can live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power, uh, the, the resurrection not only demonstrates the power that's available to us as Christians, it gives us hope concerning our own resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. His resurrection is proof that those of us that are born again are going to be resurrected too one day. And that just as Jesus come up out of the grave, we too will come up out of the grave. We too will spend forever in a heavenly body. We will have a glorified body. And the Bible says, child of God, don't sorrow as those, here's what it calls them, those who have no hope. Those that are outside of Christ have no hope. What is hope? Hope is an assurance that something good will happen in the future. Hope is an assurance that, that, that what God has said is mine. Hope is a guarantee of something good to come. The Bible says if you're outside of Christ, you have no hope. If you are here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, according to God Himself, you have no hope. You're hopeless. But when you place your faith in Christ and your sins are washed away and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and God takes you from the kingdom of darkness and places you into the kingdom of God, when He takes you away in John chapter 8 from being a son of the devil and makes you a son of God, at that moment He gives you a living and an eternal hope where you can rest assured that when you leave this place, that when you breathe your last heavenly breath, you will enter into the presence of God. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord because He rose from the dead. We will rise from the dead because He rose from the dead. We have hope in Christ Jesus. 
And he says, therefore, you don't sorrow like the rest of the world. That's an interesting statement. He doesn't say you don't sorrow, period. We mourn the loss of our loved ones. Nobody enjoys having a, a lost family member or a, a loved family member uh, pass on into eternity. We miss their company. We miss sitting at the table with them and having dinner. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Our sorrow is different. Our sorrow is overall mixed with a grateful thankfulness that we have a hope that we will see them again. We have a peace that they are in a better place than we are here. We have the hope and the no-so salvation that they are in a better location than they were here. That there's no pain, there's no sorrow, that they are in the presence of God Almighty. And while, yes, in this natural realm, we miss those who we love if they were Christians. And if you're a Christian this morning, we have a hope because of the resurrection that one day we will spend forever in eternity with our loved ones. There is no other religion that offers such a thing. Only through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is the giver of eternal life. And His resurrection from the dead is the proof of it. This morning, I hope for those of you that are Christians, that you can see that your faith is founded in something secure. That because He rose from the dead, you can rest assured in everything else that He said. That because He he proved who He said He was by rising up out of that grave, every other promise that He's ever given you is as equally solid as when He told us that if you destroy this temple, I will rise it up in three days. Our faith is secure when we trust the Word of God. Because He rose from the dead. I have a hard time understanding how so many millions in this world can follow a religion of a dead man. I don't understand it. Why do they think that they're being told the truth? Our Savior rose from the dead. He proved that what He said was true. We don't have to question it. Why are there so many that reject Jesus? You want to know the simple truth of the matter? They reject Jesus because they reject His message. They don't like the truth of what He said. They don't want to agree with the Word of God that all are sinners. If you're lost here this morning, listen to me very carefully when I tell you this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a Christian in this place, myself included, there's not a born-again believer in this place that did not need grace and that does not need grace continually. We are not better than you. We are not holier than thou. Everyone is sin. Everybody is guilty before God. There is not one, the Bible says, that seeks God. There is not one that does right. All of us need a Savior. We have simply embraced that truth that we were wicked, desperate without God, hopeless without God, 
guilty before God, unable to pay for our own sins, unable to, to wipe the slate clean, and that we needed a Savior to intervene for us and to take our sins upon His own shoulder and pay for them in His death, and that we look to Him and Him alone as the source of our salvation. And why do we trust Him? Because He rose from the grave to prove that what He said was true. No one else has done that and there will never be another. He rose from the grave. Church, our faith is on a solid foundation. This resurrection is so important that multitudes have tried to debunk it. But even the strongest arguments against the resurrection of Jesus are ridiculous. Hard to fathom that anybody in their right mind with any ability to cognitively think would even come to such conclusions. There are some who tried to argue that His disciples stole Him away and lied about His resurrection. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. These disciples went with Him for three and a half years, heard Him teach about integrity and truth, watched Him refuse to do anything wrong, watched Him silently die for his, the will of the Father and refused to defend himself, watched him heal the sick, listened to everything he said. These disciples left all that they knew to follow Jesus. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Then all 12 of them got together and made a collaborative effort to come up with some grand plan lie to deceive the world. That's insane. And then to think, furthermore, that nearly every one of them would die for a lie... That, that somehow these men who fled from Jesus like cowards, all of a sudden, a few days later, something comes over them and they bust out of their hiding place proclaiming to the world, Jesus has risen from the grave. If they were lying? That's insane. Men do not die for something they know is false. Especially, as records indicate, ten of the eleven disciples martyred for their faith. So then those who have made such a stupid argument say, well, you're right, that doesn't make very much sense. Let's try another out. The Roman government stole him because they didn't want a big uproar. His enemies are the ones that did it. Really? So if they stole him, then they would know where the body is, wouldn't they? Well, how come then when... The, the, the disciples are out preaching and all the masses are turning to them and they're telling them, quit preaching in the name of Jesus, quit preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Well, if these enemies had the body of Jesus, why didn't they drive a stake through His feet, hanging upside down in the street, and say, here's your risen Lord? That would have stopped the argument of the resurrection. Some have said that dogs ate His body. Well, we do know that he was guarded by Roman soldiers inside of a sealed tomb. And we do know that there would have been bones, and yet there were none. Some have argued that he didn't actually die, that he just pretended to die. And that after three days, he regained his strength and came out of the tomb and went and convinced his disciples that he actually rose from the dead. I'm telling you, the arguments are incredibly stupid. Because we know this, as we studied last week, the Bible tells us He was beaten beyond recognition. 
We know that through the amount of blood that he lost, that most doctors concur, he would have died soon had he not been crucified anyways. So we have the beaten Savior who is so exhausted before his death, he can't carry his own cross, and Simon has to carry it for him. Crucified, nails driven through his ankles and to his feet, bleeding there, and then they take him down off the cross. He is, he is so uh, messed up that everybody thinks he's dead. And they place him in a tomb without any food, without any water, and somehow in three days he regains enough strength to roll the stone away. And not only does he regain enough strength to roll the stone away, he just looks so incredibly healthy. It's, it's utterly unbelievable that fools would try to say something so stupid. But I ask the question, why do they? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, there is only one way. That's why. That's why. And it really is that simple. That is why people reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ because then they would have to accept His message if they accepted His resurrection and they're unwilling to do so. So they come up with the craziest things, but none of them hold water. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And when He rose from the dead, it gave us eternal hope. His resurrection demands our complete loyalty. His resurrection proves to us that He has the power to give salvation. This morning, Jesus has the power to save you. It doesn't matter how much you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how wicked your sins are. He took every sin and He nailed it to the cross that day. Whether you are guilty of the most heinous and wicked things that we could name, or whether you seem to be over here on this pool of people who haven't done much too wrong, but you're still guilty of sin, wherever you are this morning, He is able to save you to the uttermost. There is not a sinner that Jesus cannot save because He is able to give salvation. The resurrection proves it to be so. Not only is He able to save us, this morning, because of the resurrection, He has the power to change us. He has the power to change us. Oh, I wish that God would help us to get deep in the soul of the church again. He has the power to change us. I'm not saying that you'll be perfect. I'm not saying that you will never sin, but the power of the resurrection is proof. He has the power to change you forevermore. There are multitudes who could stand and testify if I just gave you the opportunity to do it right now. I'm one of them. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to do it. Bob Hill, you're going to have a chance in just a minute. Kevin Wilkes, you're going to have a chance in just a minute. And I'm going to ask Jason Thomas in just a minute. And I'm going to give you mine quick right now. God changed me like that. I'm not the same man that I was. I used to be a hopeless, drug addict, selfish, one of the most wicked people you've ever seen in your life. I cared about nobody but me. But when God touched me and when God changed me, it changed me forever. I'm not that same man. I might have the same name. I still am related to the same relatives, but I now belong to the family of God. I'm a different person than I was 12 years ago because Jesus has the power to change us and to change us forever. Jesus got up from the grave so that He could change us. If you don't know that, listen to me so carefully this morning. True Christianity 
is a whole lot more and it is a lot bigger and it is a lot more real than just going through the motions and saying you believe something. He has the power to change you. If you're angry, if you're bitter, if you're hurt, if whatever it is, He has the power to change us and to change us forever. And the key is in what Brother Thomas said, in truly surrendering to God. Too often we don't truly surrender. He is not the king. We still want to be king. We still want to make the calls in our life. We still want to make the decisions in our life. We just want a Savior to save us. But He has the power to change us. And we need to preach this again in the church. People need to know no matter where you're at, no matter what you've been through, He has the power to change you. He can change your circumstance, but most importantly, He can change you. Because of the resurrection, He has the power of victory. We can live in victory, even in a fallen world, even in a society where wickedness abounds, even in a culture where people are going to do things they shouldn't do, and you're going to live around family that is lost. You're going to be around people at your work that are uh, hateful towards God, and you are constantly uh, uh, embattled with, uh, with thoughts that are, that are contrary to the Christian message. We can still live in the victory of Christ because the power of the resurrection is now ours. And He has the power to give us hope. Jesus blew the lock off of the prison of death. He blew the lock off of it. You don't have to remain in a prison anymore, folks. You don't have to remain in a prison of hopelessness and a prison of despair. The truth is, Muhammad didn't get up. Confucius didn't get up. Buddha didn't get up. Joseph Smith is still dead. Jim Jones is dead. David Koresh is dead. But Jesus is alive. He is alive and He got up. This morning, because He got up, you can get up. He got up so that you can get up. He took your sins. He took your despair. He took your loneliness. He experienced it all. He went through everything so He could be tempted the way we were tempted, yet without sin. So that He could sympathize, the Bible says, with our infirmities. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be confused. He knows what it's like to be done wrong. He knows what it's like to be hurt, to be physically abused, to be falsely accused. He took all of it with Him to the grave, but He got back up so that you could get up too. You don't have to remain in that prison of death. You don't have to remain in that grave of hopelessness and despair. He got up so that you could get up. He did it for you. And He did it for me. You don't have to stay in that prison of death. You don't have to stay in that grave of despair. You don't have to stay in that prison cell of loneliness and rejection and pain and being wrong. You don't have to stay there. He took it with Him to the grave and He rose up so that you could get back up. This morning as our worship team comes, I ask you the question, have you got up? Have you got up? Because He did. He got up so you could get up. Maybe you're here this morning and you're lost. Today, God wants to give you life. The truth is, if you're lost, and you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is the, this is, I'm just telling you the truth from the Word of God. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what it says. You're without hope. What a terrible place to be without hope. But God loved you so much, He didn't want you to be without hope. 
He loved you so much, He didn't want you to have to pay for all of your sins. And He sent His Son to do it on your behalf. And His Son rose from the dead to prove you can trust Him. There's no one else that's ever done it but Him. You can trust Him this morning. And you can trust His message. That if you'll turn to Him and look to Him to be the Savior and the Lord of your life, He'll take you as you are and He'll help you get up out of your hopelessness and you'll find life in Him and Him alone. This morning, I want to remind those of you that are Christians. Sometimes we forget the power of the resurrection in our life. Sometimes we think that we're we're just hopelessly doomed to, to live a life of defeat and misery until God finally takes us home. Not so. You have eternal life. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have it. That's not that you're going to get it one day. You have it now. One day you're going to get a glorified body and it'll all be perfect and we won't, and sin and suffering and death will be finally dealt with. It'll be eradicated. It'll be done with once and for all. But even now God has given us, spiritually speaking, eternal life. And we don't have to remain in that grave of despair, in the chains of hopelessness. He got up so that you could get a child of God. He has the power to change you. He has the power to break your chains. He has the power to overcome your weaknesses. He has the power to help you live in victory. This morning, if you're a child of God, you need God to help you get up out of something. He got up so that you could get up. I want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, when we sing the song of invitation, whether you kneel at your chair, whether you come forward, I encourage you to come forward and kneel at one of these altars. But if God's dealing with your heart, let Him set you free this morning. Let Him help you up out of that grave. He got up out of His so that He could help you up out of yours. Oh, Father, have Your way with us this morning. God, move us with faith. God, help us to surrender to You. God, help us to see that You have given us victory, power to change. That we're not just waiting for for someday in the future where we can have victory in life, but You have given it to us now. Lord, let us pray.